MSW Media. Thanks to Hunter Douglas for supporting the Daily Beans. Hunter Douglas makes innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, and control systems that can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position throughout the day and bring greater convenience, style, and comfort to your home. Right now, for a limited time, you can take advantage of generous rebate savings opportunities on select styles. Visit HunterDouglas.com slash Daily Beans for details. And today's show is also brought to you by my favorite daily nutritional drink, Athletic Greens. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. Go to athleticgreens.com slash daily beans to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. We thank them for their support. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Tuesday, May 3rd, 2022. Today, a landmark ruling is handed down in favor of the 1-6 committee, an update in the case against the two men that posed as DHS officers and bought gifts for Secret Service agents, new polling shows Dems have an advantage in the midterms, a jury convicted another Capitol attacker on all six counts, Pelosi and a delegation visit Ukraine but did not tell the GOP they were going because of security concerns, and the January 6th committee sends letters asking for testimony and information from Ronnie Jackson, Andy Biggs, and Mo Brooks. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hi, everyone. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday. Dana's going to be back with us tomorrow. I'm going to take you through the news today. And a little bit later in the show, I'm going to be talking with author, military historian, and retired Marine officer Brian Mark Rigg about cybersecurity and Article 5 of NATO and a little bit about what's going on in Ukraine. Just so you know, that interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago, but all of that information is still very highly relevant, and I'm sure you're going to really like that interview. And also, Kamala Harris has tested negative for COVID after being positive for a couple of days. That's good news. And something, I don't really have a full story on this, just a tweet from Caitlin Collins at CNN. Pelosi and Schiff visited Ukraine, but didn't tell the GOP over security concerns. Now, the Republicans were like, why didn't you invite us? Well, apparently, the Dems told the Republicans they were going to Poland, and the Republicans declined to go, but they didn't tell them they were going to Ukraine over security concerns. That means one of our two major political parties is a national security threat. I don't know if they were worried that they would tell the Kremlin, that the Democrats were going to be there in Kiev meeting with Zelensky and give away Zelensky and possibly Pelosi and Schiff and everyone else's position. But it is frightening that they didn't share that with one of the major political parties in this country because of security concerns. So I just wanted to let you know that happened. We do have a lot of news to get to today. And also, I just want to let you know, technically, I'm on vacation this week, but I've been pushing it back And I've been pushing it back because I want to take that time to go to D.C. and uh, sit in on some of those January 6th committee hearings that start on June 9th. So I figure since it's technically my vacation, even though I'm here, lots of really big news tends to drop when I'm on vacation. So I'm just putting that out in the universe. I am technically on vacation, universe, Justice Department, in case you didn't hear. All right. We have a lot of news to get to. Let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. 
All right. A Trump appointed judge has handed down a major loss to the RNC in its bid to prevent the January 6th committee from getting information from one of their vendors called Salesforce. The judge rejected all six of the RNC's arguments, one as moot, and ruled that Salesforce must comply with the committee's subpoena, but also extended a stay for a couple of days on the handoff of that information until Thursday. It was going to be expiring on Monday, but they extended it to Thursday, which gives the RNC a couple of days to appeal the decision, which I imagine they will. Now, Andrew Torres and I are going to go over each of these six RNC arguments and why the judge tossed them all out on tomorrow's Clean Up on All 45 podcast. But in short, the judge says the committee has a legislative purpose and has authorization to subpoena the RNC's email vendor for documents and communications, except those the vendor says are privileged, which isn't very many. Doesn't violate the First Amendment. It doesn't violate the Fourth Amendment, whatever other bullshit arguments the RNC and Ronna Romney McDaniel came up with were tossed out. Now, the vendor Salesforce was already ready to comply with this subpoena until the RNC filed suit to block them. And Salesforce has expressed concern that the RNC emails were defrauding donors and stoking the violence that occurred on January 6th when the RNC used Salesforce service to disseminate campaign and fundraising emails. So tune in to Clean Up on All 45 tomorrow for a breakdown. Also, the committee has issued three letters to Republican members of Congress to provide testimony and information based on evidence gathered since the last time they requested information from them. In a letter to Andy Biggs, the committee cites four examples of things they'd like to discuss with him. First, they want information of known 1-5 and 1-6 rally planning meetings at the White House between him and other members of the so-called Freedom Caucus. Second, they want to know why Ali Alexander said he had worked with Biggs and two other Republicans to bring protesters to D.C. on January 6th. Third, they want to know about Biggs's role in getting state legislatures to send fraudulent slates of electors to D.C. and Congress and Mike Pence. And finally, they want information about Biggs's efforts to secure presidential pardons for people who tried to overturn the 2020 election results. Already, Biggs is saying he will not cooperate. Now, in the letter to Mo Brooks, the guy who wore body armor that day, the committee wants to discuss his recent statements that Donald asked him to rescind the election results and he refused to go along with it. And Donald wanted him to immediately put Trump back in the White House. If you remember, Mo Brooks came out against what Donald Trump wanted to do and has said so in multiple statements. And since then, now the committee wants to say, oh, are you willing to come talk to us now? Mo Brooks has not refused to cooperate, but has not commented. And in the letter to Ronnie Jackson, they want to know why people who've been charged with seditious conspiracy, the Oath Keepers, were texting about protecting him and his location and that Ronnie had some type of quote unquote critical data on him that needed protecting. So the House Committee wants to know who informed the Oath Keepers that Ronnie needed protection. They want to know who Ronnie spoke to on the phone during that attack, because in one of the text messages, Stuart Rhodes, seditious conspiracy leader of the Oath Keepers, had texted, give Ronnie my cell. Now, it's important to note the committee is being advised by several former federal prosecutors and that prosecutors usually don't ask questions they don't have the answers to. That means it is possible that the committee has evidence and knows of the critical data Ronnie had on him, who told the Oath Keepers to locate and guard him, and who spoke to Ronnie on the phone that day. Two of the Oath Keepers, by the way, that were charged with seditious conspiracy 
have pled guilty to that charge and others and have flipped and are cooperating with the Department of Justice. Interesting. Now, in a related story, the Department of Justice is batting a thousand when it comes to convictions by a jury in January 6th cases. Today, after just two hours of deliberation, a jury came back to convict former police officer and Marine Corps veteran Thomas Webster on all six counts the Justice Department charged him with, including assaulting law enforcement when he hit a Capitol police officer and beat him with a metal flagpole. Another Capitol defendant who pled guilty to the same charge, by the way, Robert Palmer, was sentenced to 63 months. And that's with a guilty plea. That's with a little bit of cooperation. I imagine the sentencing for for this man who pled not guilty and refused to cut a deal won't be so lenient. And he is scheduled to be sentenced September 2nd by Judge Amit Mehta. So we'll be watching for that. I bet more than 63 months is what he's going to get. I'm not sure what the prosecution is asking for yet. And an update from the Post on the two men who were arrested for impersonating DHS cops. Washington Post writes, earlier this month, when FBI agents dressed in ballistic vests and armed with rifles streamed into the apartment building, residents of The Crossing began to realize they were living among alleged posers, not protectors. Prosecutors charged Tahir Zeta and Ali with impersonating federal law enforcement and accused them of lavishing gifts on real agents who lived in the D.C. apartment building, including one officer assigned to protect the first lady. Authorities said they seized a stockpile of firearms, ammunition, police gear, surveillance equipment, and ID cards. After searching apartments, Tahir Zeta rented through a private security company, his private security company. Now, as the government investigates whether the men may have bribed members of the Secret Service who lived in the building and threatened national security, questions still remain over the motive behind the ruse. The Post interviewed several people who lived in the buildings with Tahir Zeta, both at the crossing and another complex in D.C., and reviewed court documents outlining allegations against the two men. These residents spoke on the condition of anonymity because they fear for their safety. Tahir Zeta, 40, and Ali, 35, have been on home detention after a federal judge released them earlier this month, saying that prosecutors proffered zero evidence the defendants intended to infiltrate the Secret Service for any nefarious purpose, or even that they specifically targeted the Secret Service. As it turns out, according to court documents and interviews with those who previously lived in a building with Tahir Zeta, the Secret Service was not the first who said they were fooled. Lawsuits assert that Tahir Zeta, through his companies, had not paid rent at two other luxury apartment buildings in D.C. A possible pattern of deception, it appears, was at least three years old. A possible pattern. Yeah, definitely a pattern. It was the summer of 2020, the height of the pandemic, and the two men were drinking on the roof of the Carver Apartments in northwest Washington. The friends, who had met a few months prior, nursed vodka, Red Bull, and beer. It seemed like a relatively standard night until Tahir Zeta needed to refill his drink and invited his friend, who spoke on the condition of anonymity over safety concerns, down to his apartment. Inside, the friend said he saw rows of computer screens flashing live security footage from inside and outside their building. Rifles, pistols, tactical gear was all stored in cases around the living room. Tahir Zeta had told the friend that he worked for the Department of Homeland Security and investigated gang violence, and the friend had noticed him walking around the building with a 9mm gun strapped to his waist. One night that summer, while racial justice protests following the police killing of George Floyd turned especially violent in the district, the friend said Tahir Zeta stood atop the apartment in tactical gear with binoculars, apparently keeping an eye on the city. The friend said the sheer extent of police and surveillance equipment in Tahir Zeta's apartment was staggering, but didn't surprise him. He said he left that night feeling like he had a real insight into the life of a federal agent. 
He said he returned to Taharzadeh's apartment later that summer and fired an airsoft pellet gun at the wall. Okay. The setup with police gear, security equipment, and surveillance technology observed by the friend is similar to what FBI agents would later describe in a criminal affidavit charging Taharzadeh and Ali while they lived at the crossing. The men were often seen in areas of both buildings. At times, they were supposed to be off limits to residents, according to those who lived in the apartment complexes. Court records show Taharzadeh's security company leased three apartments at the Carver starting in the fall of 2019. The company failed to pay rent on any of the units, according to a lawsuit filed in April 2020 by Carver's management, and a judge ordered the company to pay more than $145,000 in back rent and fees and rent through the end of the contract. In a statement, a lawyer for Carver's management company said to D.C.'s restrictive regulations prevented the complex from taking over the apartments when rent was not paid, which basically provided free housing to these people for over nine months. No attorney was listed in court documents for the technology company or Taharzada. Other lawsuits accused Taharzada's companies of similar failed rent payments. Together, they paint a picture of a man who was left behind him a trail of creditors and lawyers jumping from one apartment complex to another. Quote, we chased him for years, attorney Thomas Mauro told the Washington Post shortly after the men were arrested. Mauro represented One Hill South, luxury apartments on the southwest Washington waterfront, where Taharzada rented two penthouses in 2018 through a technology company he said he ran at the time. The residences together rented for slightly less than $10,000 per month. Mauro said that Taharzada presented himself as the company's president and offered tax returns that showed a monthly income of $70,000. The complex owner said he failed to pay rent and sued him for more than sixty-three grand in payments, and that case is still active. By the time he left One Hill South, Taharzada was running a security company called USSP, which he often referred to as the United States Special Police. He used that name to rent apartments at the Carver, and then again a year later at the Crossing, where he listed the United States Special Police as the occupant of at least one of the units. The owners of the Crossing in July 2021 took Taharzada's company to court, saying it failed to pay for apartments that ranged from $2,300 to nearly $5,300 a month. The building owners won nearly a $223,000 judgment. So weeks into the investigation, it remains unclear, if anything, what the men wanted from federal agents in exchange for their gifts. Both have pled not guilty. Taharzada said he had no intention of compromising any federal agent and acted out of a desire for friendship. While Ali said he had gotten carried away in a scheme he didn't fully understand and believed he was working for a legitimate security company. That's according to documents filed by their defense attorneys in court. The Secret Service has downplayed any risk of national security, but several former Secret Service officials stressed that the alleged ruse reveals vulnerabilities among employees who are supposed to be trained to spot scammers or spies, but instead were tricked. Some residents of the crossing, meanwhile, are furious. They said in interviews and on internal messaging boards that they're worried about their personal security and are considering legal action against the crossing. They sought luxury and safety, they said, and instead allegedly lived among fake agents with real guns. I'll keep you posted on this story. And finally, in a positive indicator for Biden and his party, the post-ABC poll also shows Democrats moving to rough parity with the Republicans on intentions to vote in House races in November often seen as a key indicator of the size of the potential shift in the balance of power. Republicans need a net gain of five seats to capture control of the House from the Democrats, which would allow them to block Biden's agenda for the last half of his term. Not that we need Republicans to block our agenda. Today, 46% of registered voters say they would vote for the Democrat in their district, compared with 45 who say they would vote for the Republican. Based on historical patterns, Democrats would likely need a bigger advantage to avoid losing the majority. But last fall, Republicans had a 10-point edge, so there is now an 11-point flip. 
And in February, led by seven points, the Republicans did. This is called the generic ballot, by the way. Nearly all of the change since February is a result of a shift toward the Democrats among self-identified independents, a group that can be volatile in public opinion polls. Democrats have that 12-point margin among voters 18 to 39. In February, those voters were split evenly about the two parties. Now they have a 12-point gain. Democrats have an advantage with these younger voters, even though they disapprove of Biden's performance by a 13-point margin, 52 to 39. The same pattern appears among independent registered voters. This group disapproves of Biden by a 21-point margin, but splits 42-42 on the congressional vote. All right, we will be right back with Brian Mark Rigg right after this. Stay with us. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hi, everybody. It's AG for The Beans, and today's show is brought to you by Athletic Greens, an amazing company that specializes in convenient, very, very convenient daily nutrition. It's such an easy habit to pick up. My world is extremely busy. I have a very hectic schedule, and I also have a lot of gaps in my nutrition because I'm perimenopausal. I intermittently fast and I'm paleo, so it can be difficult to eat well and obtain the nutrients that I need. But thank goodness for Athletic Greens. A scoop of AG1 from Athletic Greens provides complete daily nutrition for me. AG1 has multivitamins, multiminerals, a probiotic, a green superfood blend, 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food ingredients in all. After I drink it, it's delicious. I feel energized and productive throughout the day. I I have it before I go to the gym in the morning. That's when I take AG1. And it's Awesome. Compared to the multiple pills and supplements, I had a full cabinet of different things I had to take to supplement my diet. And now it's just one delicious scoop of AG1. It provides a complete nutritional balance that's bioavailable, easily absorbed by the body, good for your gut, adaptable to all lifestyles, including keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, and gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. It's free from GMOs, chemicals, or artificial ingredients. It tastes great. And they are into science, which I love. They update their product. Most supplements hit the market and they stay the same for decades, but not Athletic Greens. AG1 has been improved 53 times in the last decade and counting as a result of the latest research. And to make it easy for you, Athletic Greens is going to give you an immune-supporting free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase when you visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans today. Again, simply visit athleticgreens.com slash dailybeans to take control of your health and give AG1 a try. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Today, I'm honored to be joined by author, military historian, and retired Marine officer, Brian Mark Rigg. Hello, Brian. How are you? I'm doing good, Allison. How are you doing? I'm doing well today. And thank you for your service, by the way. Appreciate that. Yeah, you too as well, United States Navy. (laughs) You're welcome for all the rides we gave you everywhere as Marines. Yeah, that's true. Very true. And today I wanted to bring you on to talk about, because we've had some really big breaking news from the Department of Justice that really isn't getting too much coverage, though it is kind of subsumed into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And that is cybersecurity and cyber attacks. Can you talk a little bit about your background in that? And then also what you think of the Department of Justice's announcement that they took down a Russian oligarch who skirted sanctions. They indicted him. They authorized in March an offensive, a cyber offensive, and took down a Russian botnet. I mean, there's a lot going on. I was hoping you could speak to. Yeah, you know, a lot lot of people don't realize that there are battle spaces out there that are not traditional, you know, whether it be, you know, on the ocean and on land or in the air. Many people know about those battle spaces. But in outer space or in the cyber world, many people don't realize that this is also a battle space and that it needs to be 
guarded, and it also needs to be used as an offensive weapon. Now, the one thing that we have not done uh, and not been very good at is using it as an offensive weapon. What a lot of people don't realize is that Russia, China, and North Korea, they actually have whole divisions that use cyber warfare to attack our civilians. It's no, probably, it's, it's, it's no new news to a lot of people that billions of dollars are lost each year with cyber attacks on personal civilians. You know, fraud, false bank accounts, false, you know, wiring, uh, convincing people to send money someplace so that they think they're, they're doing something good. I mean, Russia is the land of criminals. And now we know it's a fascist land. and has a land with a horrible dictator there. And it needs to be destroyed. So one area that needs to be really looked at that Russia is very, very good at is cyber security and cyber warfare. And so it's good that finally we went on the offensive and we need to start developing more robust systems to go after these petty fascist little leaders who have raped their country economically, the oligarchs, and take them out and take out their military infrastructure and take out Putin's uh, uh, government infrastructure and start doing a lot of payback. Because Russia is a menace to the welfare of nations, period. Yeah, and I have to wonder about the funding, too. And I think that the sanctions that the West is employing right now uh, as a joint venture against Russia is going to help cripple that. Because I think much of the the cybersecurity botnet, GRU, you know, they I mean, they announced in 2014, hey, this is the new warfare. One of their generals there over in the military in the GRU and, and you know, The funding has come largely from the oligarchs who have stolen all of the money from the country, which is, I think, becoming very apparent in the weakness of their military. I mean, their military has had a very poor showing. And it makes me wonder if they've even kept up their nuclear arsenal like it it just it's it's garbage. And so I'm wondering about how how these sanctions might impact that cyber funding. Well, you know, I think you bring up a really interesting point. I mean, uh, everybody's kind of shocked at how pathetic uh, Russia is performing. But you're absolutely right. When you look at the leaders in Russia, they're not taking all that money and putting it back in uh, to the infrastructure. Whereas if you study Nazi Germany, Hitler was many things, but, you know, a multi-billionaire like Putin, he was not. And he put a lot of the financial resources into the military, making it one of the most modern uh, forces the world had ever seen in 1939 when he launched the, the, the world in World War II. Putin has not done that. You know, Putin is worth over 70 billion. All these oligarchs are worth billions. You know, we need to target these oligarchs and take away their finances. Now, we still have a mandate that we can't take out leaders. So, you know, I don't know how well their nuclear infrastructure has been supported, but I think you bring up a very interesting point that when you have a nation that has a tiny minority that is raping it blind economically that and they haven't been putting it into the military, this allows us an incredible opportunity to really bring Russia to its knees. And I think a good vision to have is what we did with Japan and Germany. And that is if eventually we can take out Putin, that we do like a Marshall Plan and, you know, transform Russia because they are obviously the last couple hundred years incapable of producing good governments and leaders. They are a pathetic nation when it comes to this, as far as producing leaders that are a menace to society. Stalin, Lenin, the czars, and now we have the petty dictator Putin. But when you have the nuclear arsenal, even if only 10% of his missiles are 
effective. You still got a lot of death and destruction with atomic warfare. And that's the new element when you try to do parallels with Mussolini, Hitler and, and Hirohito and how we took them out with how we should be dealing with Putin. But we shouldn't let him bully us and they're not putting more hardware, more independent units into Ukraine and helping this democracy and being more aggressive in the cyber warfare space, like you're noting, and target their atomic arsenal with our cyber warfare. Uh, so, I mean, there's many new realms of thought and uh, strategic uh, you know, planning that are now going to be done and is currently being done with the reality that we're seeing in Europe. Yeah. And I'm an 80s baby. To me, the only way to take out a nuclear missile is with another missile in the sky, when in fact we now have cyber capabilities or should have cyber capabilities to do that in a much safer way, <laughs> a less Star Wars Reagan type way. I wanted to also talk to you about NATO. As we know, 60 plus Republicans in Congress just voted against basically just saying we support NATO. I call them the Kremlin caucus. But, you know, I trying to figure out as you know whether or not we we establish a no-fly zone and if we can do it for humanitarian purposes as as Masha Yovanovitch former ambassador to Ukraine who testified against Trump in second impeachment or first impeachment excuse me i get the impeachments confused you see Brian. there's so many of them <laughs> <laughs> so zelensky is asking us for asking the world to help establish a no-fly zone close the skies but then again it seems as though our intelligence communities or assessments from the intelligence communities is that if we provide anything that is has an offensive stance, like a plane, like a fighter jet, like something that could take out their anti-aircraft systems, S-400s, is that, what they're, is that what those are called? I can't yeah, remember. This one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that those are have offensive stances, whereas if we send javelins and bullets and, you know, anti-tanks, that that's anti, that's like d defensive posture. And, and we don't want to, unless, you know, Russia, you know, crosses over an inch into that, into NATO, then we, we don't. And so I was wondering what your thoughts were on that and why that is. Well, I think, you know, we need to have more courage with our leaders. I mean, these these 60 Republicans that voted not to support NATO, uh, that's disgraceful. You know, NATO is uh, is is a huge deterrent against uh, Putin. And we see that appeasement does not work once again with what he was doing in Syria, Georgia, Crimea. We should have been much harsher with him uh, and dictators. When you give them a little bit, you know, a few inches, they'll take you know yards from you. Now, no fly zone, I think. The easy solution here is for people to be courageous, not be bullied. And we're seeing crimes against humanity, crimes against peace uh, that Putin is committing. He's committing Nuremberg trial-like crimes that we put Nazis in the dock for and we hung them. Now, I think the best way you do this when you look at international law and you look at historical precedents, we have like a huge group of flying tigers. And they don't have any nation's markings on them. And they're a conglomerate of 30 or 40 nations from NATO pilots. And they're saying, OK, you do not uh, own this area. Your crane does. We're protecting it. And we're protecting it just strictly from a defensive posture of the civilians. You come in this zone, we take you out. And we already see with the Russian pathetic military, it's going to be easy to do so. And I think that's what we do uh, very quickly. And so what is what is Putin going to do? Yeah, that's the concern is the nukes. Is he going to nuke all 30 nations? 
you know, that have independent pilots there under a neutral insignia. I mean, if he does, then, you know, we're going to obliterate his nation. I mean, if he starts sending off nukes, we should then resort to then doing a full on attack to Russia and just take out that pathetic nation. Now, this is a dramatic and extreme way of looking at things. But as you and I both know, being veterans, the only language that people understand in this world is overwhelming violence. Hirohito did not lay down his arms after we firebombed Tokyo and after we were about to occupy his country and Russia was about to invade. He surrendered when two bombs went off in Nagasaki and Hiroshima, and he realized he didn't have power projection capabilities and his nation was going to be destroyed. How do you do that with Russia? I, I don't know. Yeah, because the concern is civilian casualties. Is to, I mean, I think everyone's goal here is to limit the death of civilians as much as possible. Yeah, exactly. And and so it's, 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 Allison, it's incredibly difficult when you look at, okay, what escalation point is a point of no return? Mm-hmm. When is Putin going to go nuts and hit all the red buttons? You know, is he capable of doing that? Are the missiles going to be functional? Do we have interceptors that can take it out? Do we have enough of them? You know, these are the questions that I don't know uh, what the research really tells us here, but it's something that we've been trying to avoid for 70 years. And now we have a distinct possibility of nuclear warfare. The question is, is if Putin decides to do that, does the West have the resolve to say, okay, you're going to hit us with five or 10? We're going to hit you with 100 or 1,000. You know, we're going to take you out so quickly. And looking at how poorly his conventional forces you know, is performing. I would be kind of shocked if his nuclear arsenal is, is, is a, you know, a high level functional level. I don't know. You know, one nuke is too many, but this is the whole new dynamic that we have with dictators and autocratic regimes right now is like, how do you deal with these guys when they have the capability of sending uh, over missiles that will pollute the environment and create incredible amount of destruction? Uh, so it's it's a tough one, you know, and I don't know what the answer is, but being bullied into not protecting civilians, preventing massacres and mass murder, which is what Russia is doing, we're not doing enough. You know, when t- hundreds of children and, and innocent civilians are being slaughtered and a democracy is being brutalized and we're not we're not stopping it, we're not doing enough, you know, and we need to be more courageous. And I think that independent brigade would be something that would be very interesting to call Putin's bluff. It might be very dangerous, but, you know, is he going to attack all 30 NATO nations with nuclear warheads? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. But these are interesting questions that need to be debated and discussed. And like I said, we're not doing enough because uh, look at what's happening in Ukraine right now. Yeah. And I would think that if we had the capability or could quickly develop the capability to remotely disable his nuclear arsenal, then it might be safer to do something or maybe, you know, there we could be more bold. NATO could be more bold than it is right now. Uh, but I mean, I understand what you're saying. You're saying be bold now. Yeah. And I honestly just don't know. I'm I'm sitting here like I voted for the people who I thought were the smartest and I'm just going to hope and think positively that they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. However, the, the last time we thought we knew what we were doing, we ended up in a 30, 40 year cold war. 
which is just a bunch of in- intense violence and civilian death with the looming threat of nuclear attack. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think we can do that again, but I don't know what the answer is. Yeah, I don't either. And a lot of the systems that Russia has are analog. So even if we did, you know, incredible electronic warfare or cyber, you know, attacks, uh, a lot of the stuff would still be functional, meaning that they could still launch it. Uh, you know, we almost had, you know, a huge nuclear war, if you will, or a Cold War go hot with the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah. And there was many other uh, cases with, you know, our stuff on the high seas and what we were doing with the submarines and so on that could have led to also uh, an outbreak of hostilities. And they were preparing to take over Berlin uh, multiple times, thinking it would happen in the 60s and 70s, Checkpoint Charlie and so on. So, you know, we avoided that. And only in retrospect did we realize, you know, how lucky we were and how close we were to, to, to war. Right now, we are close to World War III, but we need to do everything we can to neuter Russia, make sure they never do this again. I think the sanctions are having some effect. But when you study the history of sanctions, they've never worked. You know, we still have the religious nut jobs in, in power in Iran, although we've had sanctions. Tons of sanctions against North Korea with Kim Jong-un and his you know, father and grandfather, but he's still a nut job there and in control. Xi Jinping is a brutal dictator as well. China is not our friend, uh, and we've done economic warfare with them. That is extreme with, uh, compared to Iran, uh, Russia, and North Korea, but they don't work historically. The only way you really take out these bad guys historically is you kill them. You destroy their military capability. A lot of times you got to occupy their countries. That thought of doing that in Russia is horrifying. But that's what it's ultimately going to you know, take. And we see incredible success in Europe with what we did after World War II and then Japan. So it does work. But what we do in the interim as Putin continues to slaughter people left and right in a democracy. I mean, you look at the hypocrisy here. You know, when we were struggling as a nation, we begged France for help. Lafayette and so on. They eventually came over and gave us arms and we fought. But then they also brought in personnel and ships and sailors that helped us win the war. Same thing with England. They were begging for help against Nazi Germany. We didn't give it until, you know, Pearl Harbor. And then Hitler declared war against us, and then we gave them the full force of our military, and it saved England. They're thankful. They begged for it. You know, Germany's always said after World War II, never again. You know, never will we see genocide and warfare. And look, it's happened again and again on their doorstep. Bosnia, now Ukraine, and Germany, they're bleeding cowards in many respects. They won't stand up to the plate and stop genocide and warfare when it's happened on their own doorstep. So they need to take a stronger role, get back more of their military tradition and be a stronger presence to deter uh, Russia. How that looks, though, here again, Allison, you're right. As you shake your head when you're looking at me right now, it's like, you know, what do we what do we do when it then part of the equation is nuclear warfare? And I don't know. I just know that we can't be coward because if we are, Putin will continue. He will continue on. Dictators, as they get more power, their reason goes down, and he's not going to stop with Ukraine. And no, he's not yeah. going to stop until he pulls. Yeah, know, every, everyone says. Uh, everyone says that the Ukraine won't be the it won't be the end. 
And of course, we don't know what's actually going on behind the scenes in Department of Defense, Pentagon, intelligence community, with special forces and all that. But, you know, a, a lot of folks say with the sanctions, if you put the screws to them hard enough, that the people of Russia will oust Putin, leave it to the Russians, leave it to his oligarchs who are, you know, very sad right now that they've lost their drivers and their boats and their <laughs> caviar. They're very upset. But, you know, perhaps maybe that's the way. But the, but honestly, top Russian military officials in Russia aren't that good at that. They, they just have they haven't proven themselves on the battlefield as adversaries worthy enough to go in and, and take out there and oust their own leader. That I don't think they have the the training or the desire. And then, of course, all the disinformation where they think they're actually denazifying Ukraine and the president of Ukraine, who is Jewish and whose relatives escaped uh, Nazi Germany, which is just absolutely barbaric. When I read the translation of what Russia has said they must do to denazify Ukraine, and that is to kill every man, woman and child whether they're in the military or not, if they aren't on our side, they're against us and we must exterminate them. It's it's frightening. Yeah, it's a a playbook right out of Mein Kampf. And, you know, Hitler's dictates with the propaganda that he was saying about Russia and America and so on. You know, if anybody's a fascist or a Nazi regime, it's, it's Putin's regime. Yeah, obviously. I mean, he's taking people, separating families, putting them in, in camps, which are concentration camps. I mean, everything is... Exactly. I mean, it's not even a, a, a hint of it. It is exactly what Nazi Germany was doing. And uh, I, I don't understand how people can't see that. And I certainly don't understand how United States of America, House of Representatives, representatives that elected by the American people would vote to not support NATO. It blows my mind that the Republican Party is is pro-Putin. Yeah, that that that's shocking me. I mean, this is new information you've given me. I, you know, uh, obviously my news feeds. I did not see that uh, before our, our our interview. I find that very shocking. We need to support NATO. NATO is stronger than it's ever been now with this this threat. You are seeing a lot of European nations finally growing a backbone and putting more money and resources now to their uh, their militaries. I mean, the United States Marine Corps is bigger than the entire German military, and we have better equipment. And you're our smallest branch. And we're of the smallest branch in, in America, 180,000. So Germany needs to step to the plate with, you know, nation of 90 million. And, and since they play such a central role with the European Union, NATO is going to be a very good deterrent to Russia. We need to bring in Sweden. We need to bring in Finland. I think we need to fast track one way to really create a legal nightmare for Putin is the fast track NATO membership for the Ukraine. Mm. And then we have legal justification to protect it. Mm-hmm. And then kick them all out of our, uh, uh, you know, all the Russians out of the Ukraine, out of Crimea, and then see what Putin does. You know, he can't nuke us all. Is he going to try that? Is that part of the doctrine? Is there checks and balances? These are things I don't know. Yeah. But the Russian people, when you look at like their, you know, just on the small level with their athletes in the Olympics, they're liars and cheaters. You know, they do steroids. They don't play according to the rules. They're bullies. Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure if they if if they're in charge of whether or not they do the steroids and cheat. I mean, you know, I I kind of still retain the hold of the blame on 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 the Kremlin and and the government in Russia there and the the oligarchs, the kleptocracy, because, you know, and I, I was thinking of the 
the Russian ice skater who was, and this happened all around the United States, all around the world. People were condemning her. She's 14 fucking years old, you know, like she doesn't, yeah. like she's out there no, like, no. like sneaking her own steroids without some coach who has been told by an oligarch that is owned by the government and controlled by Simeon Mogilevich not to dope. You know, I mean, I'm just like, ah, I mean, come on. And I, did you see the uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger message to the Russian people? I love it. Wasn't that a yeah, it was it. amazing, right? Yeah. You know, and that that's the, the tragedy here. You know, here's a nation that has produced, you know, Trotsky, Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, you know, Brezhnikov and you know, Shostakovich. I mean, such rich literature and art and thinking and music and, and, and also science. But yet on the other side, politically, they've just been pathetic. They're a system of uh, incredible graft and corruption and mafia. I mean, they make yeah. the, the Russian mafia makes the, the Italian mafia look like child's play. They're brutal. And it's a brutal society. And, you know, so they don't have a tradition of really when they usurp leadership that's bad, like the czars, they bring in even worse leadership in some respects, mm-hmm. you know, with the Soviet Union. Yeah, the disinformation and state-controlled media has, a, I think, a giant amount uh, to do with that, which is why I'm, I'm worried here at home about our media and our fourth estate and the disinformation and the botnets and that that's that's rampant here. I mean, we are where Putin is doing what Trump was attempting to do on January 6th and failed. And, well, and, and that, we could be on that road if we don't protect. I've been saying we must protect democracy at home if we want to preserve it abroad. Yeah, well, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the, the line between chaos and, and organization and democracy is very small, you know, tyranny. The beautiful thing about, you know, I mean, Trump, you know, wh- whether you like him or, or, or not, you have to admit that if he could seize total control, he would. And the beautiful, of course, yeah, he tried. <laughs> he tried. And the beautiful thing about our government is that we have checks and balances. And our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, uh, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, all in particular, these four guys, they realize that if you don't have checks and balances, you create dictators. You create, you know, uh, autocratic regimes like they saw in England with the king, King George. And they said, never. We cannot have that. They also saw the danger of theocracies and dictatorships, if you will, during the 30 years war. That's why they said no religion can ever uh, control a nation. So we have prevented situations like we see now in Iran or in North Korea or in, in, in Russia because of the checks and balances, because of a freedom of, of, of the press and uh, freedom mm-hmm. of, of speech. And we need to keep you know, preserving that. I still think we have a very strong foundation in those areas. But you're right to point out Russia does not have right. that at all. So in one respect, even though I hold the Russian people responsible for this and they're sending in boys to rape and slaughter and torture kids and women, you know, this is a pathetic nation that does this. It doesn't put checks and balances on these guys. So on one side, it needs to be destroyed. On the other side, we have all that misinformation going on, like we see with Nazi Germany. A lot of the Germans in the 30s believed all the nonsense because there wasn't checks and balances on the press. And so we need to help Russia get educated. And so getting back to Schwarzenegger, that was a great plea to the Russian people. Like, will you stop being pathetic and rise up and get rid of this guy? Be the good parts that we know about Russia and let's see it. But I don't think they're 
I think they're a nation of cowards uh, right now, and they're a nation of fascist supporters. And they're, it, it, whether they're brainwashed or not, they're a menace to society. Some, yeah. And I mean, we, we have that here at home, you might also argue. But, you know, our system did hold on January 6th, thanks to brave men and women at the Capitol, our checks and balances, our system of government. But it came so very close. And uh, I don't think that the framers and the founding fathers had Citizens United in mind, all this money and politics in mind, because <laughs> that's that's when our system has uh, checks and balances are, are well, it, the strongest. And it's a process. I mean, you know, <laughs> it is. So in many respects, knowing these problems, building in our Constitution, our Bill of Rights and so on, the flexibility to continue to morph and create a better society. I mean, America is is incredible. It's a wonderful nation, even with all its warts and, and, and problems, because in the history of mankind, it's one of the only few nations that ever goes out and helps people and prevents genocide and fights against evil uh, regimes. Now, granted, we've done some really bad wars that we shouldn't have. You know, the second Iraq war, nonsense, it was horrible, waste of lives. Afghanistan, why, why, why we sterilize for a pathetic nation of Afghanistan? Look how quickly that democracy fell apart. None of our American boys and women were, were worth that. But when you look at what we did with Germany, what we did with Japan, what we did with the Yazidis when they were being slaughtered by ISIS, what we did in Bosnia, what we did in Rwanda, a lot of times we're late to the game, no doubt, but ultimately we're doing a lot more good than we do bad. And in the history of mankind, that's remarkable. And, and so that we well, I think that's your point here. We don't want to be late to the game here. And we are. And that, we are. Yeah. We are. Yeah. OK, I want to take we've gone way over time, but it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you, but I didn't want to leave. <laughs> I didn't want to I didn't want to go without talking about this. We're going to take a hard left turn here. I want to talk about a very important book that you've written that is coming out April 26th, uh, but Conquering Learning Disabilities at Any Age. Can you talk a little bit about this. Yeah, well, thank you, Allison. Yeah, I have um, I have the dubious honor of having failed first grade twice. I have what today people call ADHD and dyslexia. When I was a kid, it was called MBD, minimal brain damage, and HLD, hyperkinesis learning disabled. And I had a severe speech impediment. And so after I failed first grade twice, my mom started having nightmares of seeing her 20-year-old son being able to drive himself to his own sixth grade graduation she realized she needed to take some really proactive action. So she got me to a special school here at TCU called Star Point that focuses on kids with severe learning disabilities. And I went there and I started learning how to learn. And then, you know, as I got better at learning throughout my life, I had to adapt and improvise and do things in a very unorthodox way. And then when my kids were born, they inherited my genetics. And so I used a lot of the skills that I had uh, helped me to get to Yale University and get a PhD from Cambridge University to help my kids. And so now looking back with 50 years of experience, I've written up this book to hopefully inspire people with ADHD and dyslexia, uh, how they can learn how to learn and be better and use these things as an al allies and not, not as looking at them as afflictions. And then helping teachers and parents of ADHD and LD uh, children be empowered about how to help these people learn about their brains, learn how to learn, and to create a healthy environment of self-esteem, realizing they're not learning disabled, but they're just learning different. So this is my new book that's coming out, and thank you for letting me plug it a little bit. 
I love this whole other side of you. You're like cyber attack military marine guy, but then you're like, but also <laughs> we need to take care of our children, understand that people learn differently and make sure that everyone st- you know, starts at the same starting line. Amen. Uh, because that's that's very, very important. Thank you so much. I've had uh, a wonderful time talking to you. And I hope that you come back maybe and talk a little bit more when we get some more news about offensive cyber attacks, which I think we might mm-hmm. in the coming months. I would love to talk to you about those if you don't mind. Uh, Thank you very much for your time. Brian Mark Rigg. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you, Allison. Thanks so much for having me. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. Hello, Beans listeners. Hello, Leguminati. It's AG. Our show today is brought to you by Hunter Douglas. As you know, I recently got in my house, remodeled the entire thing, and Hunter Douglas was a big part of that. They make innovative window shade designs, gorgeous fabrics, but the coolest part is they have control systems that can be scheduled to automatically adjust to their optimal position no matter what time of day it is. Using Hunter Douglas's PowerView technology, you can set your shades to automatically adjust for the perfect balance of light, privacy, so you know you can see out but people can't see in, and insulation. Hunter Douglas shades are useful for diffusing harsh sunlight and allowing a nice glow to fill the room. The window treatments provide privacy inside while allowing you to enjoy the view. And they help your home stay warmer in the winter and cooler in the summer, which lowers your utility bills and takes a little bit of the burden off the grid. So enjoy greater convenience, style, and comfort in your home thanks to Hunter Douglas. Really, really beautiful, amazing shades and fabrics and window dressings. Again, that PowerView technology is totally amazing. I love how regardless of what time it is, it, my shades know when to reposition themselves to give me that optimal balance of light, privacy, and insulation. And right now, for a limited time, you can take advantage of generous rebate savings opportunities on select styles. Just visit HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans today for details. That's HunterDouglas.com slash DailyBeans for details on a limited time generous rebate savings opportunity for select styles. Hey, I'm Ben Micellis. I'm Brett Micellis. And I'm Jordy. And we are the hosts of the Midas Touch podcast, the top rated, top watched political podcast for pro-democracy content. Each week we do multiple episodes where we break down the political issues of the day here in the United States and abroad as we fight for democracy. Isn't that right, Brett? That's right, Ben. We've had conversations with some incredible guests like White House Chief of Staff Ron Klain, Beto O'Rourke, DNC Chair Jamie Harrison, Glenn Kirshner, Mary Trump, celebrities like Deborah Messing, Alyssa Milano, Michael Rappaport, and more. So subscribe to the Midas Touch podcast wherever you get your podcast. That's the Midas Touch, M-E-I-T-A-S-T-O-U-C-H podcast. Jordy, anything to add? Shout out to the Midas Mighty. All right, everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Well, we're blown on good news. It's on the way. And if you have any good news, corrections, confessions, pod pet photos, uh, Whoopi stories. If you want to send a picture of a local animal who's up for adoption in your area from a shelter, we would love to hear about that. Anything you're making or creating or your small business, I want to hear about that too. Um, and you, you can send it all into us from one convenient location, dailybeanspod.com. Just click on contact. And if you have a chance and you're listening on Apple Podcasts, subscribe and give us a rating. All of our ratings got erased. Thousands of ratings got erased on January 1st. I don't know why. I'm still trying to figure that out but it would help if you would leave us a rating. Thank you so much. All right, first up from Carol, pronouns she and her. Been listening since the kitchen table days. Awesome. Now hubby and I listen together daily. I was the proud owner of the first pod snail. Yes, (laughs) included as a photo 
of two of my aquariums. This hobby, along with your podcast, are what got me through the Trump years and the pandemic. Much love and gratitude, Carol. Thank you, Carol. Oh, look. Hi, guys. Hello. I like this. this, I want to live in there. That looks very peaceful. Oh, look at this one. Look at the fishes. Hi, fishes. So cute. Thank you for sharing that, Carol. Appreciate you. Next up from Cint, C-I-N-D-T. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Or please check at Tom Keish on Instagram. That's T-O-M-K-I-E-S-C-H-E. He's a volunteer at LA Shelters and they have a three-year-old German Shepherd dog who passed her search and rescue test but needs a handler who can help her learn. Are there any former military dog handlers who could adopt and foster and help her work her brain and maybe help her community? This dog is baby wild in his videos. Oh, he's so handsome. All right. That's Instagram, Tom Keish, T-O-M-K-I-E-S-C-H-E. Look at baby wild. What a good dog. Thank you for sending that in. Uh, Holly Barbo, no pronouns given. Greetings, sisters, after my own heart. Today I'm sharing with you my superpower. I'm an author turning today's political news into fiction. It's my philosophy that people are so polarized in their thinking that they won't believe the news, engaging podcasts, or read factual nonfiction books if such information is contrary to their tribal think. So I present information in story form and remove the knee-jerk labels of R or D or red or blue. Instead, I write in situations, actions, and personalities. If they recognize the danger or similarities of an action from a fresh angle, perhaps it'll break open a crack in what they've accepted as truth without analyzing deeper. Enclosed, a pick of my latest three books. I'm doing my part to shed some light. I used to work out my plots with my husband as a sounding board. When he died unexpectedly two years ago, I've had to heal. Uh, now my adorable rescue kitty helps me, uh, helps me keep sane as I work through the gut-wrenching news and try to twist it into gripping story. Sharing two pics of my Misha kitty, my fur baby friend. Oh, ooh, that was a very beautiful kitty. Very floof. Very happy. All right, so here are Holly Barbo's books. If you're interested, Minefield, Shellgame, and Vortexes. Awesome. Thank you. And it looks like K.H. Bixby is a, a nom de plume. Thank you for sending those in. That's amazing. I want to check those out. Next up from Anonymous, pronouns he and him. Thanks, Leguminati, for always giving me a good laugh with the news. As an Ohio poll worker, oh, bless you. I want to remind everyone to please get out to the polls on Tuesday, May 3rd. That's today for the first primary election. This primary is being held for state races, governor and Senate, but also congressional races on the unconstitutionally gerrymandered map. There will be a second primary for state legislature races this summer. Even though the map that's being used for this election was already struck down once, it's still critical to get out there and get your vote in. I, I imagine so, especially now. And I hope to be having a busy day when this episode airs. Speaking of laughs and the primary, I couldn't stop cracking up at the former guy screwing up when trying to remember who he endorsed for Senate in Ohio and settling on J.D. Mandel. The bastardization of J.D. Vance and Josh Mandel. I'm sure I'll have a few people asking me why they can't find his name on the ballot today. Yeah, probably. For pet tax, please see our dusty kitty gray boy stretching out in the sun and our calico with her curled feetsies. Take a guess if that belly is a trap. It usually is. Thanks, as always, for all you do. And listeners in Ohio, listeners in Ohio, get out and vote. And please volunteer to be poll workers, too. We're always short on numbers. Thanks again. Okay. Oh, stretched armies. 
That belly looks like a trap to me. Um, I got to be honest. Let's see. Answer. Yes, that belly is 100% a trap. Ha ha ha. I think it's just always a trap. All right. Next up from shitty IT girl. Cutest picture of my neighbor's cows I've taken so far. And one of Dixie's at someone's door. Okay. Look at these fluffy cows. Oh, that's a nice sunset. Or is that sunrise? I can't tell. It's beautiful. Oh, and hello. Hello, cow. (laughs) Right at the window. That's beautiful. Thank you for that. Oh, see that little, that kind of cluckle, that droop, that chest droop that the cow has? My cat has that as well. All right, from Susan. Pronouns she and her. Hello, dear beans crew. I have a sort of whoopee. How do you spell that story? And a what the mutt. So whoopee. Some people say W-U-B-B-Y. I say W-O-O-B-I-E. But I mean, whoopee. My dad was born in 1927. And one of my most precious inheritances from him, other than his very even temperament, is this straw stuffed bear on wheels. I'm quite sure he never cuddled it, but I can imagine a tiny boy gleefully pulling it by a string behind him and having the time of his life. It makes me smile to remember my dear dad at any age. For pet tax and what the mutt, I submit my sweet seven-year-old grand dog. He is a rescue, and my son was told a mix of three breeds. I'm sure you'll get all of them, but have fun. Where to put the answers so you don't see them? I'm just going to leave a lot of space. P.S. My son has a great sense of humor. Thanks, Papa. And has fun with his dog as a model. Couldn't resist sending you an example. I'd like to speak to a manager. Okay, that bear on wheels is really cool. The dog is adorable. Hello? Hello? And I'd like to speak to the manager. (laughs) Very good, very good. All right, for breed, uh, Pibble, German Shepherd, and Lab, and Chow Chow. There's only three breeds? Damn. All right, let's see what it is. Lab Chow Sharpay. Ah, oh, the ears should have given away the Sharpay. Ah, oh, dang it. All right. I was, I got two. I got two. <laughs> and let's see here. Uh, this is our final submission. And it comes to us from Heather, pronouns she and her. Adoptable good news and puppy pics for Dana. Nick from the Backstreet Boys litter, rescued by three little pitties, all breeds rescue in Houston is thought to be a lab Catahoula leopard dog mix, but I bet a shiny new penny, there's pity in there too. He's about 12 to 13 weeks old and almost 19 pounds. I'm currently fostering him so I can teach him how to check in with his person with with a buzz on a humane, vibrate-only, no shock, vibrate-only electronic collar because he's inherited Merle Merle gene-related partial hearing impairment. Aha! Y'all, he is the best boy. So smart and so sweet and so adorable with intense blue eyes. Please, let's get him adopted by my amazing Beans family. Quick, before I have my first foster fail. He is the first foster pup my grumpy terrier has cuddled with. Also, Ernie the cat cuddles him too. Transport is unfortunately limited to the upper left side of the U.S. and lower left Canada. But there are lots of us here in the packed Northwest, right? Watch his training progress on TikTok. Dr. Heather's Fosters, or apply to adopt through threelittlepityrescue.org. And there's a link here that we'll put in the show notes. I was listening to Charismatic Megaplastics the other day and totally heard Dana say, here we go, and AG laughing. (laughs) He looked around for his new friends, but they were trapped inside my sound bar. Oh my God. Okay, look at the kitty and the puppy. 
Oh, oh, those eyes are so beautiful. And the nose. Oh, what a sweet baby. Thank you for sending these in. I love these so much. And thank you for being a foster, uh, a foster parent to these babies, Heather. That's amazing. Everyone, thank you so much. Uh, Dane will be back tomorrow. If you have any, have any good news, pets, adoptable pets, your pets, Halloween photos I take all year, anything you want to send, you can do so by going to dailybeanspod.com and clicking on contact. And uh, like I said, Dane will be back with me tomorrow. Thanks again to uh, Dr. Rigg for joining me today. And until tomorrow, everybody, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. And vote blue over Q. I've been AG. And them's the beans. The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg and Amy Carrero. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. <laughs>